Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from the book of Revelation. We will be bringing chapter 15 to its conclusion. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 15 in verses 5 through 8. Revelation chapter 15 and verses 5 to 8. Revelation chapter 15 and verses 5 to 8. Please then hear with me the reading of God's Word. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, there are a variety of ways in which people attempt to approach or deal with those biblical texts that deal with the the wrath of God. There are some people who attempt to distinguish between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Right? They speak of God as if He somehow changed. How in the Old Testament, God was an angry God and a wrathful God. But the God in the New Testament now is, has ceased from His anger and from His wrath. And now, He is a, simply a God of love. There are others out there who try to make uh, more nuanced arguments when they approach the topic of the wrath of God, uh, whether it be in the Old Testament or New Testament, because they recognize that both Testaments speak of the wrath of God. But what these folks do is they, they attempt to make the wrath of God something that is impersonal. And that is a very serious error. And what I mean by they try to make the wrath of God be something impersonal What I mean by that is that they affirm the wrath of God, but that they would say that what is being described when we talk about the wrath of God is simply the result of cause and effect in a moral universe. They would say the wrath of God is nothing more than a mere metaphor for the natural consequences that we endure because of our own wrongdoing. But whatever option they take, What we need to see is that both of them do injustice, great injustice, not only to the Word of God, but the nature of God. If you say that God changed from the Old Testament to the New, you do injustice to the nature of God. Why? Because God does not change. A change in God implies imperfection. But God is perfect. What are we told in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6? For I, the Lord God, do not change. So that the God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. 
The nature of God does not change. He does not lose something in the New Testament. Likewise, for those who argue that the wrath of God is something impersonal, they undermine God's own testimony concerning Himself. And they, in fact, do injustice then to the Word of God. Right? They, in denying that and making it impersonal, they do injustice to the very self-revelation God has given to us concerning Himself. As one scholar points out, there is over 470 times that the Scriptures speak of God's anger or God's wrath in both Testaments combined. And what you find as you look at those various texts is that they demonstrate to us that God's wrath is not simply some impersonal legal consequence when you do wrong. Right? One example of this comes from Leviticus chapter 26. And verse 30, here in Leviticus 26, verse 30, God warns the Israelites about spurning His commandments and despising His statutes. And He says this, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and My soul will abhor you. That's not impersonal language, is it? That's very personal, very relational language. But at the same time, brothers and sisters, uh, let us not become too prideful in ourselves in thinking that we can't make similar mistakes as well. And so we have to be careful as we likewise look into the wrath of God so that we do not do injustice to the Word of God or to the nature of God as well. And one of the ways that we actually can do that today is by trying to compare God's wrath, the human wrath. Right? God's wrath is not some uncontrollable, foolish, and sinful outburst like our wrath oftentimes becomes. Right? That is not the way God's wrath works. In fact, John Gill defines God's wrath as this. He says that God's wrath is the heat of His great anger. God's wrath is the heat of His great anger. It is His anger, He says, not only kindled and incensed, but blown up into a great flame. We ought to think of the wrath of God then as the, the fury of God's anger or the, the fierceness of God's anger. But then we have to ask, well, anger at what though? Because again, God's anger... And His wrath does not function the same way that ours does. We oftentimes get angry and are wrathful over sinful things. Things we ought not to be angry and wrathful about. But that is not the case with God. Right? He only exercises His wrath against what? Against sin. And so God's anger is what? It's His attitude towards sin. And so we are told in Scripture that God is angry at sin every single day. And yet, He patiently withholds His wrath. And ultimately, you will not experience, or the unbeliever will not experience that wrath in full until the day that Christ returns. At the same time, brothers and sisters, we need to understand this. That neither, strictly speaking, is wrath an attribute of God. Okay, wrath is not an attribute of God. Dr. Joel Beakey, 
in his Reformed Systematic Theology book, Volume 1 on the Doctrine of God, says this, that wrath is simply the holy justice of God against sin. Right? Wrath, he says, is an exercise of righteous love. Right? That's what wrath is. And it occurs not out of some unstable emotional reaction in God, but as Dr. Beeky will go on to say, it proceeds forth out of God's infinite and eternal zeal for the glory of His name. But brothers and sisters, too few believers, let alone unbelievers, ever stop to contemplate and to consider and to think about the wrath of God. I mean, think about yourselves here today. How often have you considered the wrath of God? But all of us ought to consider the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is a very real thing. And even today in the world, it is felt by men as a precursor to the wrath that shall come at Christ's second advent. Brothers and sisters, we see the wrath of God throughout the Scriptures. It's revealed to us in many instances. Think about the apostate angels who fell from heaven. That was the wrath of God against them. Think about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That was an expression of the wrath of God against sin. Or think about the Red Sea event. As the waters came down upon the Egyptians and their chariots and their horses, that was God's wrath. But there, brothers and sisters, is no greater instance recorded for us in Scripture of the wrath of God than we find on Calvary's cross. There, the wrath of God was poured out upon our Savior and He was not spared of it in the least. All of this, though, to say that we do not have to look long and hard in either Old Testament or New Testament to find texts about the wrath of God. They are there. And in fact, we will find that that is the case in our own text. For in fact, in fact the wrath of God that is going to be revealed in the bold judgments, we are going to consider in chapter 16. And so what our verses today will do, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, is they're going to set us up to enter into chapter 16. It's going to set us up to understand what is going on in chapter 16. It is going to set us up to understand the contents of these bold judgments. It's these four verses. Uh, where we are told then that the bold judgments that are poured out upon the earth originate from. Right? That is the purpose of our text today. Right? It tells us where these bold judgments that will be poured out upon the earth originate from. And what we will find as we look at the Scriptures is that it will clearly demonstrate to us that they do not occur because of natural consequences from our wrongdoing. Neither do they occur uh, only in the Old Testament as being something tied to the God of the Old Testament, but we will see that the wrath of God is still alive and well even today. And we will see that clearly as we start looking at verse 5. And so this is going to lead us then into our first point this morning as we consider the origin of the bold judgments. And so point number one is going to be wrath's residence. Wrath's Residence. When we ask someone, where do you reside? What are we asking them? 
We're asking them, where do you stay? Right? Where do you come from? And so when we talk about wrath's residence, what we want to ask is, where does this wrath come from? Where does it reside? And our text this morning is meant to supply us with that answer. So I'd ask you all to please look with me at verse 5 once again. Here we read, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now immediately we have to ask the question, what is the tent of witness? What is this tent of witness? Why is the tent of witness important? For this is key to understanding what God is going to be communicating to us about the wrath that will be poured out in these seven bowls. So looking at the tent of witness, then we can think of a text like Exodus chapter 24. If you think back to Exodus 24, after the giving of the law, the Lord tells Moses to tell the Israelites to make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. Now the sanctuary that's referred to in Exodus 24 is the tabernacle. And so we see, first of all, that the tabernacle is a symbol for God's presence with the Israelites. Right? The tabernacle is a, is a, is a symbol of, of God's dwelling with His people. Now this tabernacle was a tent and inside the tent you had two rooms. And outside of the tent there was kind of a, a yard in which they would offer animal sacrifices. Now we have to ask ourselves the question though, what was the most holy of objects contained within the tent of witness? What was the most holy of objects contained within the tent of witness? It was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 21, we are told this, And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give to you. Well, what is that testimony that He has given to them? Well, it's none other than the Ten Commandments. This is what we're told in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9. When the ark of the covenant is brought into the temple, we read this, There is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb. And what are the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters? They are the outward of expression, right, of God's inward nature. Now the ark itself was what? It was the shape of a box. So it looked like a footstool. Which did what? It symbolized what? It represented what? The throne room of God. This is why above the Ark of the Covenant there was empty space as well. Why was that? Because God can't be seen. And so they were to make no images above God's footstool. Now we can't get into all the objects in the furniture of the tabernacle. It would just make the point I'm trying to make more clear. But what I've talked about thus far I think does sufficient job. If we think about what the tent was or what the tabernacle was, it was, it was meant to, to, to convey God's dwelling in the midst, right? God's, God's dwelling, God's living there. If you think about what the Ark of the Covenant meant, the throne room of God, if you think about what the, what the law that was contained there inside meant, right? The, the, the holy nature of God, what we see is that the tent of witness uh, was always then a symbol for the heavenly tabernacle. Right? That's what the 
earthly tabernacle always was. It was a, a symbol then of the heavenly tabernacle. This, in fact, is what the author to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 9. Right? He maintains that the earthly tabernacle was simply a replica of God's heavenly dwelling place. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, we read this, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once and for all into the holy places. And so what do we see there? The author to the Hebrew affirms that it is Christ who entered now into the heavenly tabernacle, which the earthly tabernacle was a type of. Okay? Now, though, as we focus our attention upon the heavenly tabernacle presented to us in verse 5, though, we can't lose sight of the earthly tabernacle. That's why it was important to go over it. Because understanding what the earthly tabernacle was is going to help us to interpret our text this morning because the language that is used is not arbitrary language. Right? It's not arbitrary language. The tabernacle is called the tent of witness or the, the tent of testimony for a reason. Why is that? Think back to what we just quoted, Exodus 25:21. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you are to put what? The testimony that I shall give you. And so the earthly tabernacle was called a tent of witness or a tent of testimony because God's law concerning man was a testimony that was contained therein. Right? That is what we need to understand. And what was that law? But the revealed will of God to His people. And so what John now sees in verse 5 is the heavenly tabernacle open up. And what he's saying to us through using the imagery of the earthly tabernacle is this, that just like the earthly tabernacle revealed the will of God to us, so too does the heavenly tabernacle. Right? John sees it open up and it reveals the will of God to man. Right? But not only is it going to reveal to man the law contained therein, but also what it reveals to John now in this vision is that because earth dwellers have broken God's law over and over again, that God now in these bold judgments is about to send forth His wrath upon the earth. So that when we ask, right, where do these bold judgments, where does the wrath originate from? We see it originates in the just will of God. Right? The, the bold judgments we see then are not of human origin. They're not a mere metaphor, but they are of divine origin. They are of divine origin. They come from the just will of God. Right? What this picture then shows to us is that the wrath that is going to be revealed is God's wrath alone. Right? It is He and He alone who is behind the judgments that befall every person. And so there is no separating God from His wrath. There is no divorcing wrath from God. It is the fury of God's wrath that the sinner will experience. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I encourage you, let no one, let no one pit God's love and God's wrath against one another and say, well, if He is a loving God, He cannot exercise His wrath 
for that is untrue. For the one who is perfectly love, by definition, must perfectly hate all that opposes His love. Right? And so God is a God of love, but God likewise can exercise His anger and His wrath against those who oppose that which is good and holy and just and lovely in His sight. We've said oftentimes throughout our study in the book of Revelation that one of the major themes of this book is what? That the throne rules over all. And we've seen that time and time again. Think about chapters 2 and 3. What did that teach us? That the throne of God rules over His people. Didn't it? As He wrote those letters to His churches. Think more recently to chapter 12. What did that teach us? That the throne of God rules over the devil as he was cast down to the earth. What did chapter 13 teach us? That the throne rules over the beast and over the false prophet. And so let us see here today that the saints are being encouraged through the imagery of this picture. They are being told that likewise the throne rules over all the judgments that men endure. Right? They are not something that happens by chance. They are not simply natural consequences for wrongdoing. It is God Almighty who dispenses His wrath. It is God Almighty who sends them forth at His appointed time and for His purposes. We've probably all heard someone say the phrase, only God can judge me, haven't we? And oftentimes, when people use that phrase, only God can judge me, what they're trying to do is they're trying to excuse their sin, aren't they? Because they don't want someone to call them out. And so they say, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And what we see, though, is what in our text today? That in a sense, that, that statement is true. But what's going to happen is that the unbeliever is going to, to come and realize what that actually means. And then at that time, they're going to wish that it was not true. That they're going to wish it was not true. Because God is a just judge who will judge perfectly. And He will judge rightly. And brothers and sisters, right now He actually judges in part. Right? He, he sends down His wrath in part. But for the sinner, now and when He experiences completely at the end of the age, He will wish that it was man who judged Him and not God. Right? For the sinner, the, the, the judgments of God, the wrath of God is a terrible thing for them. It is incomprehensible. The wrath of God is something that no man can stand before. And the sinner may say, well, Christian, how, do you, how can I make it stop? And how can I make His wrath stop from, from being poured out upon me? And what they first need to understand is that it's the evil of their sin that makes the wrath of God burn so fiercely against them to begin with. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 about the wrath of God? He says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's another way to translate that final phrase. So instead of who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, it can also be translated who hold the truth 
in unrighteousness. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Because what does God do? Right? God reveals His Son and His saving righteousness in the Gospel and He calls all men, He commands all men everywhere, believe in My Son. And what do men do with it? Nothing. It does nothing for them. They hold it coldly. It moves their heart none. In fact, what do they do? They hold on to that message with disdain and disgust and with bitterness and indifference and carelessness and hostility. When brothers and sisters, that is the only message that they have to hold on to that will help them to escape the wrath to come both now and at the end of the age. Now what we see throughout all of Scripture though, and what we even see with our own eyes in our society, is oftentimes that judgment and that woe and that wrath does not drive men to repentance and blessedness, does it? Right? Oftentimes, the judgment and woe that befalls men pushes them further and further away from God and it pushes them further and further into their hardness of heart. But Scripture reveals to us that oftentimes that is the very purpose for why God sends judgment, doesn't He? Right? To harden men all the more in their sin. This leads us then to point number two, which is wrath's reason. Wrath's reason. We looked at where this wrath comes from. It has divine origin. But what is the reason for it? Please look with me starting at verse 6 then of chapter 15. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Here, I think immediately we ought to see that our Initial interpretation is a correct one. Why is that? Because what do we see? We see angels coming forth from the temple, which is symbolic of what? The angels now are leaving God's presence divinely commissioned to execute God's justice and judgments in the world. Now what's interesting here though is that the judgments are called the seven plagues. The judgments are called seven plagues. The only other place that this language is used outside of the book of Revelation in either Hebrew or Greek is in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, where God threatens to punish Israel with seven plagues according to their sins. And those plagues, in the context of that passage, were going to be sent because of their idolatry. Right? God threatens them with these seven plagues, and He's going to send them, the reason being, for their idolatry. Now, what does Paul define idolatry as in Romans 1? Right? Most basically, he says it's serving or worshiping creature rather than creator. Well, we have to ask, as we look at the bold judgments, who are they affecting? Look at chapter 16, verse 2 with me, please. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. 
and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The seven plagues are coming upon who? Idolaters. Those who worship the beast and its image. Right? These are idolaters who we said what? They worship government. They worship secular powers. They worship culture, society. But they reject and refuse to worship the One who created them. And what will these image worshippers do? Remember what we said in chapter 11. Right? They were going to persecute the two witnesses who were representative of what? Of the church. Right? They were going to wage war, we read in chapter 13, upon God's people. Right? Who are these image worshippers of the beast? They are pawns in the hand of the devil that he sends forth to persecute and to cause God's people to suffer in a variety of ways, one of which is putting them to death. And so for their idolatry and for their persecution of God's people and for not heeding God's command to repent and believe, we see that God will make them feel His wrath. And so we see the first reason for God's wrath then is because of sin. The first reason for God's wrath is because of sin. The sin of idolatry, the sin of persecution of His people. But this isn't the only reason for God's wrath. To uncover, to discover the other reason, we have to look at these angels. And in particular, we have to look at what the angels are given. The angels here are depicted, first of all, as Old Testament priests. They're depicted as Old Testament priests because why? They're dressed like Old Testament priests. We see that. They're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, this is what we read concerning the priest Aaron. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie a linen sash around his waist. And so what do we have here pictured? We have these angelic priests coming forth from the temple who are given these bowls to pour out upon the earth which contain the wrath of God. And so we see they are dressed like the servants of God for the service of God and they reflect the holiness of God. But now we have to ask, why bowls? Why bowls? First of all, it goes with the imagery of the tabernacle, doesn't it? Because bowls are used in the tent of witness. But where else in the book of Revelation have we read about golden bowls already? How about Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8? Here we read this, And when He had taken the scroll that is the exalted Lamb, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before Him, each holding a harp and what? Golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. So what is depicted for us then, brothers and sisters, we need to see is that God is pouring out His wrath upon the earth not only because of idolatry and not only because they persecute His people, but He pours out wrath upon the earth in response to the prayers of His people. 
And what are the prayers of His people? Remember Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? When we open the fifth seal, we read, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, and they cried with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You do what? Before You judge. How long before You judge and avenge our blood from those who dwell on the earth? And so, what do we have here in verses 6 and 7? What we really have here to the saints is an exhortation to prayer. That's what we have. An exhortation to prayer. This picture of golden bowls full of wrath, which come after a picture that we have already been given in the book of Revelation of golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints, clearly links these two images together. It connects them. And so what we ought to see is that God is using it, this picture, to motivate His people to pray. Why? Because He's telling us prayer works. That's what He's saying. Prayer works. You offered up your prayers in these golden bowls, and now I will answer your prayers as I will dispense my judgment in golden bowls full of wrath. So He's saying to them, pray because prayer works. Right? Prayer, God shows us, is the means by which He accomplishes His purposes in the world. This is what James says, isn't it? Isn't it in James chapter 5, verse 16? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now think about, though, how this picture plays with the first century believers. Those who are living at the end of the first century. Because you have to assume, I think, that that many of them are thinking to themselves in the midst of all the persecution and all their suffering, what is our right response to this? And what we see is that the right response, God says, is not to pick up a physical weapon and fight your enemy and destroy him that way. He says, likewise, through this text, that the call isn't to revolt against the Roman government as they unjustly persecute you and as they pervert justice even. But rather, He says, what you are to do is to pray. That is what we are to do. And so verse 7 that I want us to see is really a picture of God's covenant faithfulness to His people. Which is why the eternal being of God is so emphasized in verse 7. Where we read at the end of it, that these bowls are full of the wrath of God who what? Who lives forever and ever. The fact that He is eternal is a guarantee to the saints that the judgment of the wicked and the protection of God's people shall never fail. He's saying, these wicked rulers, they need to be born into the world. They grow old in this world. They die. But I am forever and ever. And so it's a promise to them. It's a promise to His people that no one who persecutes you will be able to stand before the mighty judgments of God. All will be made to be held accountable. But the way we fight them now, the way we overcome them now, the way that we be strengthened against them now, He's saying, is through prayer. Through prayer. And we have a perfect picture of this inaction in Acts chapter 12. Please everyone turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. I want us to see something there. 
Acts chapter 12. And we'll pick up in that very first verse. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him and tending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Exact same thing I'm talking about in action. Herod was the most wicked of rulers. He is unjustly, violently laying hands on the saints. He has just killed James. He has just arrested Peter. And what do the apostles do? Do they take up arms? Do they stand in protest and try to get people to turn against the government? No, they pray. And as you continue to read Acts chapter 12, what happens? Peter is freed from his bonds. And he is able to escape jail and the, and the, and the, the attempts of the Roman government to put him to death. And so, brothers and sisters, this is what the saints in Asia Minor then are being encouraged to. In the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of persecution, He is calling them to pray. Why? Because He's promising them. In the picture today of one day those bowls are going to be poured out, it's a promise to them that He's going to answer their prayers. Or you come to Me with golden bowls of prayer, I will answer them with golden bowls of judgment. That's what He's saying. Even today, brothers and sisters, as Christianity draws the ire of our secular society, and as maybe punishment or things that we might endure may increase over time, this too speaks to us, tells us that when that occurs, we must pray. We must pray. Knowing that this weapon of prayer is a far greater weapon than anything that this world can wield against us. And so, brothers and sisters, may we all be more encouraged right, to be a people devoted to prayer. As Paul says, to pray without ceasing. Because even though evil might dominate, it seems, our, our culture and our society, God is saying, I, the God who lives forever and ever, have a plan that this world will not frustrate. But my plan will be accomplished through the prayers of my people. So we see then, brothers and sisters, wrath's reason is not only sin, the sin of idolatry and persecution and rebellion and disobedience and unbelief, but also the reason for God's wrath is the response to the prayers of the saints. And we need to see that response likewise as a demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness to us. This leads us then to our our third and our final point this morning, which is wrath's revelation. Wrath's revelation. Please look with me at verse 8 of chapter 15. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. 
And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Here once more, I think it supports our our thesis in the sense that the bold judgments find their origin in God. Right? They do not originate with the angels, do they? They do not originate with the four creatures. They originate with God. The four creatures, the angels, they are merely agents that God sends forth to execute His divine plan. Now, there are a couple texts that need to be considered that really lie behind this vision. Uh, we're not going to go over them today just because of time, but I'm going to tell you them so you can write them down and that you can look at them later today and read them for yourselves and see how similar, how similar they are to our text today. The first is Ezekiel chapter 10. Ezekiel chapter 10 in verses 2 through 4 in particular. And here what you're going to read is there's going to be one who's standing with linen in the temple and the temple is going to be filled with smoke. Right? It's going to sound very similar to our text today. But what you're also going to find is that that picture introduces an announcement of judgment. Okay? So that you're going to see that the smoke of the temple associated with judgments about to come. Likewise, we see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, where in Isaiah's vision, he sees, right, the, the, the Lord's robe fills the temple, we're told, and the, the house was filled with smoke. And right after that, what does it do? It, it introduces the judgment that's about to come as he, as he sends forth Isaiah to declare his word. And so what verse 8 symbolizes then for us, looking at these two texts as kind of background text, is really the unapproachability of God's presence as he expresses his holy anger and his judgment. Right? That's really what verse 8 symbolizes for us. The unapproachability of the presence of God as he expresses his holy uh, anger in judging sin. Here His presence we read at this moment is, is so terrifying and so all-consuming that no one could stand in His presence. Not even the high priest. Nobody. Now there are two texts that, that lie behind that verse as well. The first that this is drawing on is 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10-11. to Here God is filling the temple at the dedication under Solomon and this is what we read. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. Even before that, Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, likewise is being drawn on here in Revelation 15, where we read this, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right, so what is displayed for us here in verse 8 is this, that once God decides to execute His justice, there is no staying His hand. There is no stopping Him. There is no priest to enter the sanctuary who can provide mediation for them. Right? No mediation remains when God is determined to pour out His wrath upon them. He shuts up His mercies at this time. 
Right? His, his patience with them ceases as his warnings to repent draw to an end. But brothers and sisters, I want us to take courage this day in the fact that God will not be angry forever. God will not be angry forever. David says so. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. For His anger is but for a moment and His favor is for a lifetime. For those who do not believe, there is a sentence of wrath upon them. But this is not so for you if you belong to Christ. For there is no wrath for the believer either now or hereafter. For by the grace of God, you have been made vessels of God's mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Your security then comes not from yourself, not your own righteousness, not any works that you have done. Right? Your security comes from the Lord who is forever and ever. Because He who called you to faith through Jesus Christ has appointed you according to His sovereign will, to live with Him in everlasting glory. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, for you He sent Christ. For you, Christ came and died. He came and died for your law-breaking that you may be rescued from the wrath to come. And when Christ delivered you from the wrath to come, know this, He delivered you from every single ounce of God's wrath. Delivered you from every ounce of God's wrath, both now and hereafter. As we draw to a close then, I want us to think back once more to the image of the tabernacle. Or to think back to the image of the the tent of witness or the, the tent of testimony. Because it's not the only place that the the, the, the law stood as a testimony against sinners. Or I should say, that's not the only thing that was contained in the tabernacle. Right? It, it, there, there wasn't just the law. Something else was there besides the law. And in fact, the tabernacle itself, itself we need to understand, symbolized what Jesus was going to do for your salvation. That's what the tabernacle symbolized as well. The tabernacle represented the mercy of God through the Messiah by the substitutionary animal sacrifices that were made for the sin of the Israelites. The animal sacrifices God gave were shadowy figures to show them how one was to be redeemed and reconciled to God. Those animal sacrifices, brothers and sisters, did not in and of themselves Bring about forgiveness of sin. But I call upon all who believe today to rejoice because Jesus' sacrifice for sin does. And so may we have our hearts be made glad as we conclude this morning with the words of the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 7 and verse 18 where he says this, Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights 
and steadfast love. Let us pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this uh, vivid picture and imagery that You have given to us seeing the the heavenly tabernacle opened. Uh, May it be an encouragement to all of the saints as we see that judgment and woe does not happen by chance, but rather it all befalls men by the hand of God. May we also then be encouraged to know that through faith in Christ, that there is no wrath that will befall us, both here or evermore. And so, Father, cause us to, to be able to rest in Christ this day. Cause our hearts to be happy and glad in Him. Bring about a, a comfort and a peace that surpasses all understanding. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.